Well, everybody, welcome back to Beyond the Barrels. This is episode two, uh, with quite the fanfare from episode one. We were excited about this. We uh, had over 415 views, I guess, listens so far. Uh, people are excited about it. So uh, we're going to keep doing them until the pitchforks and the torches come out and tell us to stop. So uh, we thought the episode two would be uh, a great discussion with uh, our good friend Blaine Leonard here. Uh, and I'll introduce Blaine in just a minute, but we thought, what are people, what are people excited about? You know, we looked at all the sessions at annual conference, and and one of the sessions that uh, was just hard to get into, there wasn't even standing room in there, was on uh, the future of technology uh, in transportation. And so, we wanted to bring Blaine on. Blaine is a technology and innovation engineer here at the Department of Transportation. Uh, he's been here a uh, little over sixteen years. Uh, when uh, he came right before the Olympics in uh, in 2001, at the end of 2001. So we're excited to have him. Blaine, if you want to just kind of give us a brief introduction, what, what do you do for the department? What does it mean to be a technology and innovation engineer? Well, so l- let me start by saying that, as I recall, episode two is everybody's least favorite Star Wars episode. So this is a little scary um, to be episode two. Um, so my role is to be looking at um, technologies that can make a difference in how we manage traffic, new technologies, new things coming at us. Identify those, take a look at them, see how we might integrate them, and then just sort of work through that process of getting them in. I spend most of my time, frankly, though, really focusing, uh, although there's a broad variety of technologies that we look at, really focusing on connected vehicles and automated vehicles and what that means to us. So kind of the, the, the future of what's, what's to come here in the department. That's correct. Well, give us a, if you can, give us a brief history of transportation, just kind of what, what's led us up to where we are now and, and just, you know, uh, how did we get to where we're, where we're at? So, you know, transportation is interesting. Um, we've, been at the, we've been in the business of building roads uh, as an industry for, what, 120, 150 years. Um, and, and frankly... The automobile itself was a big transformation. Um, People were uncomfortable with the noise of the automobile and the smell, if you can believe it, of the automobile. And and when we moved from, you know, horse and buggy to to gasoline-powered vehicles, that was really sort of the start of of some of the transformation. And, and, And a lot of the transformation for many years had to do with the automobile itself. You know, steering wheels and shock absorbers and windshield wipers and all of those kinds of things. Um, as time went on, we started to look at some other sorts of things. And, and by the 1960s, we were starting to deal with, with how do we manage traffic? How do we deal with congestion? Um, ramp metering, for instance, was one of the things that came around in the 1960s. That happened as early as the 60s. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Huh. Um, and, then, and then, you know, agencies started to say, well, we've got to sort of monitor what's going on. And so traffic operations centers or traffic management centers, some people call them, started to be built maybe in the 80s. And we built ours right before the turn of the century, so 99, 2000-ish. And the idea is it's no longer just enough to build roads and they'll drive on them. We have a limited asset here, and we've got to figure out how to manage that. And what we've discovered is that um, we can manage that to some degree. When we give information to the traveling public that's trusted and useful, they make changes in how they operate. And so we can take a limited asset that has the capability to move a certain number of vehicles, and, and, and we can make better use of that. So, so then we started dealing with, with data or information, data analytics. 
and what can we gather? Um, that was actually um, what brought me to the Traffic Operations Center about six or seven years ago is intelligent transportation systems. Uh, radar sensors on the side of the road measuring speed and volumes of traffic and, and, and fiber optics and, and other kinds of things that allowed us to know what's going on enough so that we could start to make decisions around that. And, and, and that just continues to progress as we get that data and be able to turn it into actionable information where we can modify or influence what's going on. So when you say data, give me some examples of the data that we're collecting uh, and, and really what we're using them for. I mean, obviously, you just talked about being able to control traffic patterns and, and congestion and stuff, but what, what are we looking for? What are we getting? So three things sort of come to mind. The first one is we have radar sensors mounted along the side of the freeway and a lot, and at a lot of our intersections, and these sensors are measuring how many cars are there, how fast are they traveling, when are they showing up and leaving, and that gives us an idea for traffic volumes and traffic speeds. Um, we and, and traditionally that was done with um, uh, loops in the pavement, um, and those have been around for a long, long time, but we've migrated mostly to radar systems off the side of the road to gather that kind of information. Think of our camera data. So we have 1,200 cameras around the state of Utah, and that's allowing us to gather information about what's happening in an incident, for instance. Um, weather information. So we have a whole meteorological group at the Traffic Operations Center, and we've got weather stations all over the state. And they're focused on road weather, not how much snow is on your lawn, but how much snow is on the pavement, how much snow will be on the pavement, what the temperature of the pavement is. We're gathering all of that data, and our meteorologists are using that to help the snowplow crews and to help the traveling public. Um, and then we've got a lot of data from traffic signals. Uh, we know a lot about what's going on in traffic signals. They're sending real-time information back to our engineers at the operations center. It helps us make them more efficient and tweak them and time them. And so that's happening. And then recently, and Carlos mentioned this in his uh, podcast, uh, his number one podcast, um, we're now buying data. So, um, a lot of vehicles on the road today are equipped with GPS, and so those fleet owners, whether it be a taxi cab or a delivery truck or a bus, what it might be, knows where their vehicles are. Every one of us pretty much carries a smartphone, and you know those companies know where we are. And so there are organizations around the world now that buy all of that data from those various companies and, and, and analyze it. Uh, of course, it's anonymized, synthesize it, and then sell back to us information about about our roadways, how much traffic is there, and how fast is it moving. And it's giving us information about roadways where we don't have enough sensor data to get that ourselves. So that data is starting to be in the mix as well. So when you say roadways where we don't have enough sensor data, these are rural roads. These are roads in the middle of nowhere uh, where the infrastructure is just not there to have the technology on those certain roadways. But the data is still there just based on the cell phones that are sitting in our pocket. That's that correct. Right? Yeah. Now, you, you said anonymize. Uh that means that the, the data is scrubbed. There's no way that Big Brother can see that I was on 90th South and 13th West at 3 o'clock this afternoon. That's, that's what you're saying when we say that the, the data is scrubbed before we get it. That's exactly right. So the companies we're buying the data from already go through that process. You know, They may be buying the data from Verizon. Verizon may know who you are, but before they're selling it to this other company, they're scrubbing all the personal information. It's just blips of data. And frankly, it's aggregated data. And so we often don't even see the individual blips. We just see, you know, at this location on the road, we're getting this kind of speed happening or this many vehicles are there. What that what that is? We're we're very sensitive about the about the anonymized data. We don't want to know that. Yeah, 
just not a lot of value in that. No, no, and, and it's not something we ought to have or want to have. So Carlos talks about Utah being kind of the forefront of, of, of this technology, that we want to make a breeding ground or, or an, an environment where this technology can flourish and, and, and move forward. Tell us what's, what's ha- give us a rundown of the last 10 years, basically, in Utah. What's happened that's gotten us to this point uh, where, where companies are coming to Utah to test out this, this uh, technology? Well, so I think in a general sense, there's a couple of things. And the first one is, is a culture of innovation. And I always point to that first. People say, well, why is Utah able to do this or that and be innovative and be creative? And I think it's a culture of innovation. And, if, and I think it goes back uh, maybe even to Tom Warren and then John Nord and Carlos carries it on. This attitude in the organization that, look, let's improve. Let's figure out new ways. Let's try new things. Let's, let's find a different, a different approach to solving the problem. So there's this culture of innovation, and it allows all of us in the organization to always be looking around and saying, you know, I can do a better job of that. Here's some way we can change. And you see that throughout the organization. You see it with, with uh, you know, lightweight fill in the embankments. You see it with, uh, with uh, uh, accelerated bridge construction. You see it with um, uh, just all kinds of things that uh, design build construction where we were sort of a pioneer in that so all of that sort of plays in the second thing from a technology standpoint and Carlos actually talks about this quite a bit and did on his podcast um, uh, the decision 20 years ago to lay fiber so fiber has given us the ability to communicate to communicate broadly uh, with all kinds of devices anywhere in the state. And our, you know, our fiber reach is pretty broad. We have 2,200 miles of fiber, and it gets us into all kinds of far-flung places in the state. And that gives us all kinds of opportunities. And I talk to colleagues in other states. They just don't have that. So that gives us a technological foundation. So we just talked about you know, connecting our signals and the data we get out of our signals and connecting, gathering um, weather information from weather stations. All of that is possible um, because of our, our fiber. And so that's really sort of the technology that gets us here. Now, the fiber connects all of our signals. I mean, that's one of the big Pretty things. much. Uh, how many, what percentage, do you know what percentage uh, of 91, our 91, 92%. Of all of the signals in the state <clears throat> can be at least seen and controlled from our operations center? About a third of the signals in the state don't belong to us. They belong to cities and counties. Those are part of that connected mix. I think when you add those, we may be just shy of 90%. But, wow. but And our goal at the Traffic Operations Center has been for several years to make that 100%, to connect everything everywhere. And, and when you think about the fact that you know the, the signals in Moab are connected to our fiber, um, it's not just the ones in downtown Salt Lake. In fact, some of the ones that aren't are in the outlying areas of Salt Lake, and mm-hmm. we're kind of working on those. But, but yeah, so it's, it's in the neighborhood of 90% of all the signals statewide, whoever owns them, and that's revolutionary. We've got these partners with the cities and counties, and we share that system. Well, one of the – I remember coming to UDOT, one of the early things that I, that I learned was how we manage traffic around big events – uh, sporting events and concerts and things like that. And, and that's made possible through this fiber network. Absolutely. Where, you know, we're able to, to control traffic signals. Um, I think we call it the green flush is what we call it after a sporting event, is being able to control and time those traffic signals leading away from an event that just gets traffic away from it and out um, and, and back onto the interstate. And um, that's because of this of this decision 22 years ago to put fiber down. It's yeah, little it things is. like that. It is. 
So we talk about um, the future of transportation, and I always go in my mind to the Jetsons, right? We we think of that cartoon and and the flying cars and. Um, or even Back to the Future, if you're an 80s movies fan, uh, Back to the Future 2 had the flying DeLorean. Um, and that was what we considered the future of transportation. Is that, uh, is that even a possibility? Are we, are we heading that way, or what does the future look like when we talk about transportation? I think flying cars is still just a little bit of science fiction. Yeah, people are working on it and talking about it a little bit. It's out there a ways. I don't think that's really the the future that we're working on today, the future that we're working on today, and this is a huge paradigm shift. The future we're working on today is the ability of vehicles to communicate with each other, the ability of vehicles to communicate with us, with the infrastructure, and with other travelers, uh, bicyclists, pedestrians, transit riders, and the ability of vehicles um, to have some sense of, of self-control, vehicles driving themselves, at least partially or fully. And those are all very near-term possibilities that uh, all of us are working on and, and, are, and are coming at us rapidly. Now, it's coming at us incrementally. Um, the chairman of Ford Motor a couple of years ago, Bill Ford, said, the day will come when, when our cars will drive themselves. When that day comes, it won't be a big deal. And what he meant was, you know, you buy a car today, and it has adaptive cruise control. It keeps itself spaced on the freeway. It has lane keeping. And in the next generation, we'll add another feature and then another feature. And one day, that final step will happen where you don't need to be in the car, and it won't be a big deal. So it's sort of incremental. It's not going to happen tomorrow morning, but it's happening pretty quickly. And and I'm not sure we're all recognizing that sort of that that process that's getting us there. So we have a tendency to talk about automated vehicles as a single thing, and we fail to recognize that automated vehicles is a spectrum. So, for instance, if you have a Tesla Model S today with the uh, autopilot system on, it's what we call a level two automated system. It can control itself in a couple of directions. It, It can change lanes, it can keep itself in the lane, it can control itself forward and back. A car that can drive itself all of the time, anywhere, in any condition, with or without a human on board, is what we call level five. So we're moving through that process of getting to level five automation. And we have to remember that automation is in some of our cars today, and we're just sort of moving in that direction. And connectivity is gradually coming in the same way. Cadillac has one model that's, uh, that's connected in the way we're talking about connecting. Most new cars today are connected through some sort of a cell phone network to get infotainment systems in the car, navigational aids, movies, music, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And we're moving beyond the capability of just infotainment towards safety functions and mobility functions. Well, and that's where the that's where being connected to each other, being connected to the infrastructure, that's where the safety comes into play here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's 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 cool to think of cars. You know, having an, there's an accident up ahead of you. You know, half a mile up ahead of you, and immediately those cars start connecting and talking to each other, so that the slowdown happens gradually and. Uh, it, it, it's kind of cool because I think a lot of us think of these automated vehicles and we think of the Tesla Model S, but we're still years away from that car pulling out of its driveway on its own, coming and picking you up at work and uh, for what we think of a fully automated vehicle. So Tesla will tell you we might be two or three years away. They might be a little optimistic about mm-hmm. that, but I don't think we're very many years away from that. Um, that t- now, some pundits in the industry will say a fully autonomous level five car that can drive itself anywhere, anytime, 
uh, with or without a human, might be 25 years away. The automakers are saying it's sooner than that. And, and, and getting close to that is probably four to five years away. Are there any level five vehicles on the road that we know of? No. So these Google cars, or you know, Google has talked about a car that's driven coast to coast multiple times. That's not a fully automated vehicle. No, and the reason for that is um, right now those vehicles can only operate under certain conditions. So the closest thing might be, you know, we might be familiar with what I call an automated vehicle shuttle, a little 6 to 12 passenger vehicle. There's one deployed right now on Fremont Street in Las Vegas, for instance. It's a low-speed shuttle. Um, it's got seating for six and standing room for six more. It doesn't need a driver. It follows kind of a fixed course in a downtown area without any high-speed traffic. It's not a level five because it can't operate on the freeway and it can't operate in, you know, in the snowstorm or whatever. It's really kind of a level four vehicle. Um, the Google the Google cars, or Waymo now is Google's name for, for their automated vehicle world. Um, the Waymo cars and, and others, the Uber car that's running in Pittsburgh, that's a Volvo vehicle, actually. And some of those, um, those are probably level three or level four. Again, um, they're geofenced into certain areas. They haven't really been fully tested yet in really bad weather conditions. There's a person sitting in the driver's seat, but the person's not driving. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's in that level three, level four range. So level five really is where we're starting to think of external conditions that are affecting the drivability of this car. Whether snowstorms, slippage on the freeway, things like that, that's where level five comes in is being able to drive in severe conditions and still operate on its own. A level five car by definition can drive anywhere, anytime, uh, whether there's a human on board or not. So the middle of the night in a snowstorm, it can stop in front of your house, you can put your 12-year-old kid in it and it'll take them to piano lessons or whatever it might be that they're going to. And, and we're a little ways from that. But that's a very real possibility for our future. It's a very real possibility. And the companies that are working on it will probably tell you it's fairly close. Well, it's too, my, I've got kids. I've got a teenager. I've got my youngest is seven. It's probably not going to happen by the time I'm still doing carpool to and from the elementary school. You know, it's entirely possible your seven-year-old won't ever get a driver's license. Interesting. Very cool. Because, because it, it may be a level four vehicle uh, being driven by somebody else or being monitored by somebody else, um, you know, in, in uh, nine years. Yeah, I think that's, that's a possibility. Well, and when we talk about the future of this, too, I, I, car sharing becomes a possibility where we buy into, you know, owning part of a service more than actually owning cars. And it, it's exciting. It's, it's interesting to me. I like to say that there are really six very distinct trends going on. They all had very independent beginnings. Um, they, they, they had different reasons for coming into existence, but they're all merging and influencing each other. And, and, and one of them is mobility as a service, the whole Uber and Lyft concept about short-term, short-haul movements that we take um, that we used to have to f sort of figure out, and, and now Uber and Lyft have made that so easy. And that includes, you know, Zipcar, the concept of you can, you know, slide your credit card and jump in a car and drive it a couple of miles. So that whole mobility as a service is one of those. The demographic shift is another one. So um, when we were 16, it was, it was sort of a given that the first thing you did on your birthday was go down and get a driver's license. And uh, you will experience that your kids may not really care and they, if they do get a driver's license, they may be 17 or 18. The demographics, the studies show that today 
the number of 16, the percentage of 16-year-olds who have a driver's license is 23% lower than in 1983. Wow. And that continues, that trend of decreasing percentage continues all the way up to age 40. And, and, and we just don't have, they just don't have a need or an interest in owning a car and operating a car. So that's a trend. Um, then there's the whole concept of electrification. The vehicle fleets are turning over and becoming electrified for a variety of reasons. Uh, there's data that we've talked about and how we use data and, and data information to, to uh, make decisions. Then there's the connected vehicle concept, uh, cars talking to each other and with us, and the automated vehicle concept. And those are merging together. So you see Uber in Pittsburgh, which is a mobility-as-a-service company, operating autonomous vehicles and also getting into the freight market. So these things are all sort of coming together. Carlos, in his um, top 10, talks about his goal of having the first fully automated vehicle drive itself from, I think he said Logan. In, in annual conference, he said Salt Lake to St. George, but we're going to change it from Logan to St. George by July 24th, 2021. Is that a possibility? In the next oh, three and a half years, is that going to happen? Absolutely, it's a possibility. Carlos has said maybe it's already happened, um, you know, I think if it's if that drive is all on the freeway, uh, so maybe not from downtown Logan, but from the Brigham City exit, if the drive is on the freeway, the Tesla Model S could do that today if it didn't have to stop to charge. And it, I don't think you can quite make it to St. George on one charge. So I think we're very close. Uh, and um, General Motors has just released a new version of its Super Cruise, which is just like the the Tesla Autopilot has the exact same capabilities. They claim it has even better capabilities. So I think that could be done pretty quickly. Um, certainly, I, uh, Elaine Chow, Secretary Elaine Chow, was one of the speakers at CES this year, which is the big technology conference that happens down in Las Vegas. And she was one of the keynote speakers this year to talk about the future of transportation. Um, she says that uh, one of the hallmarks of America is our innovation. And she says, uh, it's innovation and creativity. And as the Department of Transportation, we want to do everything we can to remove the barriers um, to this phenomenon. What does that mean when we talk about transportation? And, and what are the barriers that she talks about being in the way of this innovation and this creativity? So there's a couple of things. But, but, but first, let me make a comment about CES. I mean, CES has been around for decades. And it's traditionally the place where people go to show off the latest laptops, the latest cell phones, the latest televisions. And in the last few years, it's become a, a, a place where the automakers go. And the automakers had a huge presence this year. And a lot of press releases coming out from people like Ford who were participating in CES. Every automaker now has a significant presence in Silicon Valley. The car is no longer a machine, it's an internet device. And it has over 100 million lines of code drive, running the car. Automated vehicles have two to 300 million lines of code. So, so there's all this technology embedded in the car and the cars are very sophisticated anymore. And most of the advancements are because of, of that. So there's a couple of barriers as we look. Um, automate, for automated vehicles, and Carlos has talked about this, um, some of the barriers may be regulatory and policy-based. People often say, in order for automated vehicles to drive in Utah, what do we need to do? Frankly, I don't think we need to do very much. Um, Carlos talks about we need better paint stripes. Yeah, we can do that. We need better signage for the cars to be able to recognize. Um, the, the, the automakers would like real-time information about 
lane closures and things. Well, so would we. I mean, we've been working to get that information ourselves. But frankly, from an automated vehicle standpoint, I've got a colleague at Toyota, and he says, look, when we build an automated car, it's going to have to be able to drive everywhere. It's going to have to be able to drive in rural areas where there are no stripes. So we're going to have to build a car to do that. So I think for us, the automated piece is less about infrastructure and more about policy and regulation. So what do we do to encourage those companies? Do we make it hard for them to test here? Do we make it easy for them to test here? Do we, do we develop a bunch of legislation and policies that, that make them jump through hoops, or do we encourage them? Do we provide them access to our data to make it easier for them, or, or what do we do? And so I think there are those kinds of barriers that we can remove and we can be open. And that's sort of the direction that we've tried to take here is say, look, we've got all this data, we've got connected signals, we've got uh, information that we can share with you. We're happy to do that. Come test here, come work here, and, and, and let's, let's be part of the solution here. Uh, from a connected vehicle standpoint, it's a little more infrastructure focused. Um, um, if we're going to talk to the cars from the infrastructure, well, we've got to learn the language. And uh, we're used to building signs and writing English letters on the signs. Well, when we're having a communication with the automobile, let me tell you, um, it's a little cryptic packet of digital data. And we're trying to figure out what that means. And we actually have some interactions with some of the automakers where we're working on a very detailed level about what those packets of information look like. And, and how do we send them in a way that you can receive them? And, and what do you want in there? And what do we want in there? And so we're having some of those conversations. Um, Getting back to policy for a minute, let me talk about a few things that have happened here. So uh, some people may be familiar with some, some work we've done with some private companies dealing with truck platooning. The idea that a couple of trucks can drive really close together at full speed and draft off of each other. The, the efficiency of the, of the wind flow over the trucks make those trucks 7 to 8% more fuel efficient as a pair of trucks. Well, following close is against the law here. And so when we started talking with this company about doing that here, um, uh, as a group, we sort of went to the legislature and said, here's an innovative technology we'd like to test. Frankly, it's illegal. What can we do about that? And the legislature worked with us to put an exclusion in the law that says, yeah, the following distance is a law, but here's the exclusion. If you're testing this kind of technology under these conditions, that's allowed. Well, there's been a bill introduced in this session to open that up even farther because that that bill in 2016 was all about testing of the technology. There's currently a bill, and I don't know whether it'll get through the legislature or not, but it will remove those testing criteria. It's just, if you want to platoon here, come platoon here. That'll be legal. So that issue is on the table. Um, and so, you know, there are some things that we've tried to be proactive about in working with the legislature. Um, they asked us a couple of years ago in conjunction with two other agencies to come report to them about connected and automated vehicles and what does it look like and how are we proactive. Carlos has talked about, you know, these technologies and how the legislature and the lieutenant governor are very interested in us moving these fo forward. So we're just proactively trying to find ways um, to, uh, to encourage this kind of development and to, f and to find ways for us to benefit from it. At the end of the day, what we're really interested in is improved safety. 94% of crashes have an element of human error in them. 
We all think we're better than average drivers, and statistically that's impossible. But we all make mistakes, and sometimes we don't learn from our mistakes. And so, you know, we're driving distracted, and we're driving drowsy, and we're driving too fast, and, and we're making decisions that are bad. Well, computers might make mistakes, but they don't usually make them twice. So the idea is, and the tests have demonstrated, that if we can turn some of those driving functions over to the system, we can save lives. And that's really what's driving us. Yeah, there are mobility benefits. Yeah, there are some other things we'll get to. Uh, but safety is really, at the end of the day, what we're after. And that's, that's how I felt when Carlos was talking. It, this was all about saving lives. Um, we have a zero fatalities goal, and it's the right goal, and we're working on it hard. And over the years, we've made a lot of progress in a lot of ways. We won't get to zero without these technologies, of course. So we see improvements on policy. What, what improvements or what changes are we going to see throughout our infrastructure besides better painted lines on our freeways? Well, we're working hard on the connected vehicle side, and we're trying to build an infrastructure that the vehicles can talk to. Um, and, and, and as we've started to understand that and how to do that, uh, we've built a system on Redwood Road. So um, we have at 30 of the intersections on Redwood Road, uh, from 4th South to about 80th South, uh, a short-range communication system called DSRC, Dedicated Short-Range Communication. It's a, um, it's a short-range radio system that we put on the intersection that talks to the traffic signal. And we've uh, gone into a partnership with UTA. We've put this on some of the buses that travel Redwood Road. And, um, and it's been an interesting experience for us um, to figure out how to get the bus and the traffic signal to talk to each other through this DSRC system. Um, the beauty of DSRC is it's really, really fast. And on this particular system, that's not terribly important. But if you're preventing a head-on crash or a, or a T-bone crash at an intersection, you need to get that data back and forth between the cars in a few milliseconds. And DSRC radio will do that. It's capable of doing that. Well, in this particular case, we've built a system where um, our goal here is to make the buses more efficient, to get them on time. Um, and on that route, the buses are on or have a pretty good time adherence schedule, but it's not perfect. It's about 86%. So we'd like to get that up. So the idea here is if the bus is behind schedule as it travels down the road, it has the ability to ask the traffic signal to give it a little extra green time. Help me get through this so I'm not farther behind schedule. And this system is trying to do that. And we've had it operational on Redwood since about November, and we're assessing it to see how effective it is at getting that done. Um, but part of the benefit of the system is we've learned how to deploy this equipment and how to get the communication going. And, and we're about to expand that. Um, we'll do a very similar system on the new Provo Orem trip project, the BRT project in Provo. And we're starting to look at doing something for our snow plows. When the plow's down and they're pushing snow, we want that plow to get through the intersection. And we want to get that snow removed. So let's make that easy. Let's get them a green light and move them through. So we're starting to work on that a little bit. Hopefully by next winter, we'll be able to sort of show some benefit with that. So if these signals are able to talk to the vehicles and adjust based on the need of the vehicle that's communicating with it, is this considered an adaptive signal? Or is this, are there are adaptive signals different? Tell, explain how these adaptive signals in Moab are different from the signals on Redwood. So I'm not really a signals expert, but... Um, uh, most of our signals have the ability um, to sense conditions and make some kind of changes. 
Um, and, and those aren't necessarily adaptive because what most of our signals do is we've got sensors. So the signal knows if there's somebody in the left turn lane. And if there's nobody there, it's not going to activate a left turn arrow. And so it's going to modify its normal scheme based on what's there. A truly adaptive system, and, and before I go there, and, and our signals are interconnected and the corridors are connected. So we have a coordinated system where uh, the signals going down a corridor all know what the others are doing, and they're timed to be able to move a platoon of vehicles down there without hitting reds as much as possible. And, of course, that's very complicated. You've got cross streets and all kinds of things. An adaptive system adapts to the changes in traffic patterns on that coordinated corridor, and it's a little more complicated. And we don't do much of that here. Um, a lot of states do. Our traffic engineers feel like they've got much more capability in real time with their signal performance measures to make those changes than letting the black box sort of do it for them. So we do have an adaptive system that, that um, our engineers have built um, in Moab. We have another one um, in the Park City area. But um, this, this thing on Red was a little different than that. Um, the signal controller is, is built to take inputs. There's somebody in the left turn lane or there isn't. What the bus is doing is sending an input saying, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. I need to get through here, and, and I'm more important. <laughs> so can you help me get through here? And the signal says, I'm just going to lengthen that green by just eight seconds yeah. and, and get you through. And it may not always work. The bus may not get there in time, but that's the concept. So we've talked about uh, the three big goals that we have. At, you know, we've already hit two of them, zero fatalities and optimize mobility. The third one is preserve the infrastructure. How does this data, how does this technology help us pre preserve the current infrastructure that's in place? So there are some examples of how to do that. Um, <clears throat> so we, we talked a little bit about snow plows and getting snow plows more efficient. Well, if we can get the snow off, you know, that, that helps. But, but the idea that comes to my mind that we often talk about is using the connected vehicles as probes to gather data for us. So there are systems where um, the vehicle can send messages back. The vehicle is feeling potholes. The vehicle is feeling slippery pavements. The vehicle is measuring the temperature. And if we can use all those vehicles and connect to them and talk to them, they can send that information back to us. So if they're telling us that we have potholes in certain places, we may not have known that until somebody goes out to see it. That allows us to get out and deal with those things more. Carlos talks about in his, in his goal of having full situational awareness of all of our system, when someone hits a guardrail, well, if we know that in real time, we can deal with that. Not only deal with the crash scenario, but deal with, well, now we've got a damaged guardrail, which isn't safe. That's part of our infrastructure. Let's get that fixed. Let's preserve that. So there are all those pieces in the connected vehicle world where we can use those vehicles to kind of bring the message home and help us to know what's going on. Full situational awareness. Uh, very cool stuff, Blaine. Um, I know I'm excited about what's, what's ahead. Uh, I hope a lot of our employees um, are excited about, about what we can do to help this, uh, this move forward. We're excited about the changes that we're seeing and excited to, to get to that zero. You know, that's, I think, a goal that we're all thinking about is how do we get to zero fatalities. And I just want to thank you for your time for, for coming today. Uh, you know, I, I have one of the best jobs in the department. I'm dealing with some really fun things. It can be complicated. It can be overwhelming at times because there's so much happening. But, but we can make a difference, and there's some really cool stuff we can do. You probably can tell from me talking about it. I love talking about this stuff. This is really cool stuff, and it's a lot of fun. It is fun. Well, there we have it, Blaine Leonard, ladies and gentlemen. 
Thank you for listening, everybody. This is episode two of Beyond the Barrels. Remember, we're always looking for suggestions. If you have an idea of something we could talk about or something that would be interesting to listen to, go ahead and email it to us. It's uh, beyondthebarrels at utah.gov. And uh, that comes right into my inbox and we're able to look at it and move it forward. So again, thanks for listening. Tell your family and friends. I'm Matt Allred. We'll see you next time.